0: Brad Kina, who is an author, speaker, and public policy veteran, who writes about cultural and spiritual issues, noted that there were ten signs that depict the end of a culture. Great civilizations, he noted, of the past were destroyed when people saw these signs but failed to act. A society which no longer worships or acknowledges God the decline of the family, a society's low view of life, the prevalence of base and immoral entertainment, the increase of violent crime among young people, the declining middle class, an insolvent government, that is a government unable to pay debts owed, society's moral decay, the ruling class loses its will, and the failure of its people to see what is happening. As I read this list, it sounds as if Dan Kena is describing the culture in which we're living in today. It is a culture that is spiritually corrupt and has repeatedly turned its back on God and his ways. This morning we're going to see that a spiritually corrupt culture that repeatedly turns its back on God will inevitably give rise to leaders who are unfit to lead. We find this truth in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10 verse 17 all the way to Judges chapter 11 verse 11. I hope you brought your Bible so you can follow along since we don't have the portion of scripture on a screen. It's always important to see the the words of the page and put them on the screen of one's mind. It helps one to remember God's truth better. If you recall the book of Judges, the Judges is about a period of Israel's history where there was no king in Israel. It was a time when the children of Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result of doing evil in the sight of the Lord, God would hand over the people of Israel to their enemies. And it it would cause the people of Israel to suffer great anguish and distress. And as a result, the people of Israel would then cry out to God. And then God from heaven would hear their cry And as a result of hearing their cry, he would raise up a deliverer in order to deliver the people from their hardship and from their distress, from their enemies. And no sooner after God had delivered them through the means of a ruler or a judge, soon after their deliverance, the children of Israel would go right back to worshiping pagan deities. That has been what's been going on in the book of Judges. And for clarification purposes, a judge during this time was not someone who wore a black robe sitting behind a bench rendering judicial decisions. A judge in this context was someone whom God simply raised up to lead the people out of their distress. In order to understand the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to read to you Judges chapter 10, verses 6 to 16. This is important because it lays the foundation and the groundwork for what we're going to be looking at in our sermon message, in our passage. So this is sets the context for the sermon, the background, if you will. Beginning in Judges chapter 10, Verse 6, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see already that this is not the first time that the children of Israel has done evil in the sight of the Lord. This has been an ongoing pattern, but something's going to be different this time around. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It is interesting to note that there are seven deities, seven gods that are mentioned that the people of Israel were worshiping. It is the most elaborate, most detailed account of their waywardness in the book of Judges at this point in time. The fact that there are seven deities mentioned in this account is to show the extensiveness of the Israelites' perverseness at this point in their history. They are completely and totally spiritually corrupt. So how does God respond to this? So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands. Literally, he gave them over to the hands of the Philistines and to the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed or shattered and oppressed or crushed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. We see here as a result of Israel's continued waywardness, God hands them over to their enemies, the Ammonites and the Philistines. If you were to look at a map of the nation of Israel at that time, you would see the Ammonites to the east and you would see the Philistines to their southwest. It is as if the Lord had put Israel in a vice. They're being squeezed And as a result, they're being distressed. They're suffering, and they're in anguish. And so what do the children of Israel do? In verse 10, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. It seems as if they're repenting. They're saying all the right words. But watch how the Lord responds to their repentance. Verse 11, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet every single time you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress." God is clearly unhappy with the people's continued and repeated disobedience to his ways. And he knows that every single time they cry out to him, he knows that this isn't genuine. It's not sincere. The only reason why they're crying out to me is because they're suffering. And I know as soon as I deliver them, they're going to go right back to worshiping those pagan gods again. And I am not going to be used by people that way. But the children of Israel are not going to give up. Verse 15, and the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned do to us what seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. And so what did they do? They now turned to action. So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Here they're trying to show God that they're serious in their repentance by taking action and putting away these deities that they had been worshiping all along. But the Lord can see through their actions. He knows, again, it's insincere. We read the last clause in verse 16, and his soul, the Lord's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. This is a difficult passage to translate. It seems as if the Lord is showing compassion or is about to show compassion to the children of Israel. But yet, that's not necessarily the case. The ESV translates it, gives you a clue as to what the real meaning of what this passage is saying. It literally, if you read the ESV translation, it says this, and his soul could no longer, uh, his soul became impatient with the misery of Israel. The phrase he could no longer endure in Hebrew literally means that he was short. His soul was short. He was becoming intolerant of the children of Israel's acts and words of repentance. We see here that God is no longer tolerating Israel's condition and their desperate attempts to get him to help them. He has had enough. Now there's going to be consequences when God hands a people over to their own ways because they have repeatedly refused to walk in his ways. And we're going to see that Repeated disobedience to God's word will eventually lead to leaders rising up among the people who are unfit to lead. That's the consequence when a culture and a society continues to walk in its own ways. Eventually, leaders will arise up from among the people who are unfit to lead. And that's where we come to our passage this morning. What do I mean by an unfit leader? An unfit leader is a person, a leader, not having the necessary skills or qualities to undertake something competently. Or it can mean below the required standard, unqualified, or inappropriate. That's what it means. We need to understand unfitness in light of the Christian values that we have as believers. That's the important thing to recognize. Being unfit from the Christian perspective. A person who is unfit when it is measured the person's character is measured against the backdrop of God's word. So the question now comes, how does one recognize leaders who are unfit to lead in light of the values that we hold as believers? Number one, in light of the values that we hold as Christians, leaders that are unfit to lead will often arise from a human initiative or strategy that does not include God. Verses 17 and 18. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Here we see the people and the leaders are in a bind. They're about to fight a battle, and they don't have anyone to lead them, which is a sign of God's displeasure with a culture. There's no leadership. They don't know who's going to lead them, so they turn to one another. They don't turn to the Lord. They turn to one another. It is interesting that if you look back in Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the children of Israel are in a similar situation, but they handle the situation differently. Beginning in verse 1, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. You see a contrast between what the children of Israel were doing when they first entered the land, trusting in God's guidance and wisdom. And now we're seeing the children of Israel, after many years of walking disobediently to God in his ways, are now turning to one another saying, who's going to lead us in this time of trouble? The result of leaving God out of such a scenario means that human beings are left to their own wisdom and to their own resources. Listen to this strategy. He says, "Who?" they say, who is the man who will fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. That's their incentive. Their incentive, their carrot is, we can't find anyone to lead whoever... So we'll, we'll do this. We'll entice people to be our leader by giving them a leadership position. What kind of person do you think you're going to get when you use that as an incentive? You're going to get people who are only interested in themselves. That's it. And true godly leadership has nothing to do with oneself when one is a leader. It's about the other people. It is poor wisdom when people tried to get leaders over them without including God. The strategy was poor. It left God out and it laid the foundation by which ungodly leaders spring to the surface and occupy positions of power. So that's one way to evaluate where or to see. How leaders are unfit. They often come and arise from a human initiative or strategy that does not include God. That's what's happening here. God is out of the picture. Secondly, in light of the values that we hold as Christians, leaders that are unfit to lead often, not always, will often possess a corrupt spiritual background and demonstrate a lack of moral principles in their life. Verses 1 to 3. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. Stop right there. He was a mighty man of valor. What is a mighty man of valor? Someone who is a mighty man of valor. Valor is someone who is courageous and is fearless in the midst of danger and opposition. Right away we see that Jephthah has some of the qualities that that the Gileadite leadership was looking for. But that's not all he was. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead, Jephthah's father, begot Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah, and he went out raiding with him. So we we see two things here. Jephthah is a man who comes from a spiritually corrupt background. The actions of Jephthah's father, look at that number at first. The God of Israel was highly intolerant of any sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage, including those with professional prostitutes. According to official Israelite standards, for men to treat a girl as a prostitute was both an offense to family honor and a violation of the marriage covenant with one's wife. If the prostitute was an Israelite, we witness a direct violation of God's instructions on extramarital sexual relations, as well as laws prohibiting a father from selling his daughter into prostitution. If this woman was a Canaanite prostitute, we see a violation of the command and all intercourse with Canaanites. If she was a prostitute working in the service of Canaanite worship center, then the crime is still worse, for then Gilead had become a supporter and contributor to the Canaanite religious establishment. All this is focusing on is the immorality of Jephthah's father. He was an immoral man. What's he doing sleeping with someone who was not his wife? Or if he wasn't married at the time, he was sleeping with someone who he shouldn't have been sleeping with. His sexual ethics were perverse. Not only was his father immoral, but so weren't Jephthah's brothers. The brothers, the actions of Jephthah's brothers, their expulsion of their half-brother Jephthah was motivated by greed for they did not want him to share in their inheritance. And it was grounded in his supposed inferiority for he was a son of a prostitute. But with this act, they betrayed their half-brother and in so doing violate Israelite laws urging care and compassion for the outcast particularly orders commanding one to love one's neighbor, let alone one's brother, as oneself. By this act, they also violate Israelite inheritance law, which depended not on the mother but on the father. Jephthah's birth from a prostitute mother offers them the excuse for expelling him. So they ended up going to court and they ended up expelling him. That's what happened. The brothers were greedy. They wanted all the property for themselves. They didn't want Jephthah to have it because he was the son of another mother. But because they had the same father, the brothers would have to go to court and get and, and disinherit Jephthah legally. And that's exactly what happened. They were corrupt people. This sets the stage, the, the, the background of Jephthah. But that's not all. Jephthah himself was an immoral man for he went out raiding. What does that mean that he was a raider? The term here is, can be referred to a brigand. He was a brigand. A brigand was a member of a gang that ambushes and robs people. Especially one of an outlaw band. The term brigand comes from an old French or English word mean meaning brigante. It was a fighter or a skirmisher. Someone who liked to fight. This was Jephthah. He had a spiritually corrupt background and he was an morally unprincipled person. And when we look at many of the leaders that we have today, that's exactly who we have. We have people who have a corrupt background and have no principles and they rise to power. When you see an individual who has no scruples, immoral, Spiritually corrupt background. They have a history of spiritual corruptness. It's a sign of something, isn't it? The fact that Jephthah's brothers and fathers are mentioned are not to draw emphasis to them. It's simply to show how uh, the environment and the, and the background of Jephthah and many people today who are leaders have a background in their own personal lives that is, makes them unfit for leadership. And like the Gileadites, Many people are willing to overlook those qualities because they like certain qualities of the leader and they're willing to compromise. Thirdly, in light of the values that we hold as Christians, leaders that are unfit to lead will prioritize their own interests and concerns above those of the people. Verses 4 to 8, it came to pass... After a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we might fight against the people of Ammon. Stop right there. Here we see that the Israelites are in the midst of a war, they're facing difficulty. The leaders of Gilead realize that they don't have a leader, so now they're going to have to compromise. They know about this person, Jephthah, who lives in Tob, and so they they know his character, and they're going to go down, and they're going to go check him out. They're going to make an offer to him. What was the offer that the Gileadites offered Jephthah? They said, come and be our commander. Ah, wait a minute, Jephthah says. That wasn't the offer that you made to to the Gileadites. You said that whoever leads you in battle would be their leader. You're not offering me that. What the Gileadites are doing are lowballing Jephthah. They want to get him on the cheap. They don't want him to be their leader. They know what kind of person he is, but they're in desperate straits. They're in the midst of a battle. They're facing a crisis. So what do they do? They compromise. And Jephthah being a shrewd negotiator understands that and is gonna leverage that in, in his negotiations but he does so for selfish reasons. Continue reading in verse 7. Notice how selfish Jephthah is. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? That's Jephthah. Here the Israelites are in the midst of a battle. His people are in the midst of a battle, and all he's concerned about is whether or not He'll be able to become a man in power and in charge. That's all he's concerned about is himself. He uses this situation to leverage so that he can get more power. He knows he's being lowballed. He's like, I'm not going to be your commander. What else you got to offer? So the Gileadites in verse 8 respond by saying, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that is why we have turned or returned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now they finally say, okay, we'll give you what our original offer was to the rest of the Gileadites in our land. We will give you leadership, which is what Jephthah wants. You see in this negotiation, in this process, an individual who has clearly put his own interests above that of the people that he is called to serve. And if you recall, it was the offer of the Gileadites at the very beginning of the passage who will lead us in battle. They will be leader over all of Gilead. It will draw out people, only those people who are interested for the, in, the, in their own personal interests. And that's exactly what they got. You see here that Jephthah is a man who is unfit to lead because his first concern is himself, not the people. And he's willing to negotiate skillfully in order to get what he wants. You don't think that happens today? There are people who in power who are negotiating deals not because they're concerned about the people but because they're looking for more power. The same thing happens today and that's what happens in a spiritually depraved culture. Finally, in light of the values that we hold as Christians, leaders that are unfit to lead will demonstrate a shallow and insincere faith. Verse 9 through 11. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and Jephthah spoke all his words before the the Lord in Mizpah. Three times the word Yahweh is mentioned in these passages. Three times. Notice what Jephthah says. He says, If you take me back to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? What's he concerned about? Power. Power. And he's going to use the Lord's name to somehow show that he's being divinely sanctioned. Both In this passage, we see both Gilead leaders and Jephthah using the Lord's name to accomplish their own purposes. And you will see that in an ungodly culture where those who rise to power will show, have an outward show of religious conviction because it may suit their purposes because they know that the people want to hear that but they themselves have a different motive and that is their own purposes, their own agenda, their own desire for power and esteem. That's what's going on here. That is the mark of a culture that has gone astray. You have ungodly leaders who rise to the surface and they are marked out by these four points that the Holy Spirit has inspired the author to write. Well, the question that is, what are we to do? What are we to do? What can we do in such a situation? Because as I read this passage, I can't help but think about what's going on in our world today. And I can't honestly can't think of another time when a passage like this is more relevant than it is today. What are we to do? I'm reminded of a passage in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And I ask myself, how does God heal a land? How will he heal the land? One of the ways he will heal the land is providing godly leaders in a time of moral depravity. One of the ways that God will heal our land is by blessing us with leaders who will, number one, involve God in the decisions that they are making. They will demonstrate a life based on moral principles. They will prioritize the people's interests above their own. And they will demonstrate a deep and sincere faith in the person and work of the one who has risen from the grave. And as I think about that, that is exactly who we have in Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the leader of all leaders. in contrast to the leaders of Gilead Jesus never did anything apart from his father's will ever John 6 38 says for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me he never made any indecision and uh, never made any decision apart from his father's will in contrast to Jephthah, Jesus was spiritually pure and righteous first Peter 2 22 said that Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And in contrast to Jephthah, Jesus prioritized the interests and concerns of others over his own interests and concerns. He demonstrated this by coming to earth to die for you and for me. Which now brings us to our Lord's table. We worship a God. We worship a God who set the example of how we ought to live, not just for the common folk but for all all folks, those leaders and those who are not leaders. He gave his own self for you and for me, led by example, honesty, integrity, qualities that should be in a leader, qualities that should be in every single believer and the values by which we should be judging our leaders. So saith the word. And he left the throne room of heaven to come into this world to die and for you and for me as an example of someone who put others before himself, even suffering and being humiliated in the process. We're reminded of this when he sat in the upper room with his disciples, those whom he was leading. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, whom we commemorate today. We thank you for his godly example, his leadership, his faithfulness, his suffering. Lord, help us to live lives that are worthy of your name. We do live in a culture that has gone astray. And we pray that we would live lives that will demonstrate that you are alive. And that you're coming again soon. May this comfort us in these difficult days in which we live. And we do pray, Lord, that you will raise up leaders in our communities and throughout our land that can help reverse the way and the path in which we travel. We need your grace, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to do the work faithfully that you have called us to do. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.